This is Speak the Speech, the podcast from Bell Shakespeare. Bell Shakespeare would like to acknowledge that this episode was recorded and produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation and the Wungal people of the Eora Nation. We acknowledge them as the traditional custodians of the land and pay our respects to their elders, past and present. I have almost forgot the taste of fears. The time has been my senses would have cooled to hear a night shriek, and my fell of hair would at a dismal treaties rouse and stir as life were in it. I have supped full with horrors. Dianus, familiar to my slaughterous thoughts, cannot once start me. Wherefore was that cry? The queen, my lord, is dead. She should have died hereafter. There would have been a time for such a word. Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time. And all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. Out, out, brief candle. Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. Welcome to Speak the Speech, the podcast from Bell Shakespeare. I'm your host, James Evans, and that was Macbeth from Act 5, Scene 5, read by our guest this week. He is an award-winning scholar, currently Associate Professor of Shakespeare and Early Modern Drama at the University of Melbourne. He's the author of Shakespeare and Lost Plays for Cambridge University Press and Mind Travelling and Voyage Drama in Early Modern England for Palgrave. He's also edited Thomas Decker's Old Fortunatus for the Revels Plays series and Decker's If This Be Not a Good Play, The Devil Is In It for the Rutledge Anthology of Early Modern Drama. He's co-founder and editor of the Lost Plays database and has edited a number of books, including Lost Plays in Shakespeare's England, Loss and the Literary Culture of Shakespeare's Time, and Shakespeare and Virtual Reality. His work has been featured in the New York Times, The Guardian, the BBC and the Australian Book Review, and he's currently editing Timon of Athens for the Arden Shakespeare Fourth series. It is my great pleasure to welcome David McInnes. David, welcome to Speak the Speech. Thank you for having me. And thank you for choosing the Scottish play. I've wanted to sink my teeth into this play for a while now on this program. Uh, Tell me, David, what is it that you love about Macbeth? Macbeth is so short and sharp and just to the point and it's really punchy. And the language is so noticeably different in this play, I think, Mm. to Shakespeare's earlier works. It's Mm. very urgent. It's very bare. It's stripped back uh, and emotive, I think. It really hits you right Mm. in the face. And as a character, he really goes through an extraordinary journey, realising in that moment that it was all for nothing. What did he do it for? All the murders, all the killing, all the losing all of his friends. What was it all for? Well, that's it. It's a sudden moment of realisation and regrets, isn't it? Where he has invested so much in this prophecy from the witches and he's read too much significance into ambiguous words. Mm-hmm. And suddenly this is a complete backflip if you like now life is evacuated of all meaning and symbolism Mm. Uh, words have failed to signify accurately or or faithfully and it's a real questioning of faith and and a loss of faith in the Mm. world i suppose 
and also a loss of his humanity, isn't it? Because he he mentions at the start, you know, there, w- there was a time when I would have been freaked out when I heard some screaming, but now I've got nothing. There's nothing left in him that is human. It's a very surreal moment where you feel like he's having an out-of-body experience. He's mm-hmm. stepping outside of time, quite literally in this passage. There's a lot of emphasis on time and there would be a time hereafter. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is an out-of-body experience where he's not experiencing the world in reality mm-hmm. in the way everyone else around him is. Uh, he has really moved on to some extra level, if you like, and he's, he's mm. struggling. Yeah, mm. but he still comes back and, and he, he still fights to the end. When, when Macduff turns up, he still says, but I'm going to go down fighting. Why is that? Why doesn't he just give up and say, all right, I'm, I'm going to be the Roman fool, die on my own sword, and that's it? I think there's a certain tragic inevitability of his fate. He feels very much locked into a certain path now and in the absence of that ability to think clearly and to imagine an alternative way out of it, he just has to stay on the tracks. You know, mm. He just has to run the course. This is the direction he's set off in. He's been wound up like a little clockwork toy and he's mm. marching forward and the only thing he knows how to do is just to steer the course, just mm. to keep on going at this point. There's a certain he's – a, he's a military man, he's a soldier – He's used to taking orders, to following instructions, to having a battle plan. And if all else fails, you follow the plan, you execute the plan. So uh, he doesn't have that capacity to think differently at this point. Despite what he says in this passage, I think he is so profoundly shocked. He's lost that cognitive ability to think Mm. of options. Mm. You know, it's extraordinary that Shakespeare uses the metaphor of the... um, of the actor in in mm. this speech isn't that isn't that wonderful shakespeare comes back to this metaphor time and time again all the worlds are staged the the you know some some consider it the, the master metaphor of of the age of the time but in this case it's a it's a, an actor who no one wants to hear no one's listening they're, they're an idiot <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's right but it speaks to that duality of experience because he Presumably it's Richard Burbage, the lead actor in Shakespeare's Mm. company, playing Macbeth at that point in time. So he is impersonating something else, someone else, a role. Uh, And at this moment, Macbeth is stepping outside of his own character role as well. Mm. And he is that that disjunction between who he is, his essential essence, which we never really get to know. He grapples with that identity throughout the play and the performed identity, if you like. And that identity that's performed is socially inscribed, it's relational, it's to do with how others behave in the play. Mm -hmm. Uh, And one of the key moments in this play is that early episode where the witches are encountered on the heath Mm. and Macbeth and Banquo both respond differently to temptation. So there's this Mm -hmm. external stimulus, the witches offer them something that's tempting, that's tantalising, and then a choice has to be made in relation to that. Macbeth chooses one fork in the road and Banquo chooses the other. Right. And then they've decided Mm -hmm. to play a role from here on in until this moment when Macbeth starts realising it's all unravelled and maybe he chose the wrong role to play. Yeah, right. (laughs) Yeah, sure. I mean, this is pretty bleak now, though. I mean, he's saying that... My life is meaningless. It's full of sound and fury. It signifies nothing. You know, we're, we're getting into the, which, and this play obviously was written around the time of King Lear, the ultimate kind of bleak mm-hmm. play. And one, uh, one of the things I've been thinking about quite a lot this year, David, is whether, whether or not Shakespeare is an optimist or a pessimist. <laughs> what, what do you think? Is, is this really kind of, does this wrap up Shakespeare's idea of what life is or, or is Shakespeare more optimistic than that? I think Shakespeare's more optimistic than that. I think Macbeth has the wrong end of the stick in some ways. I think Mm -hmm. the values he has ascribed to his life 
uh, the things that he has prized as being important as markers of status, advancement in the world, have ultimately proved futile. Mm. Uh, and so the, the accolades he has sought, the benefits that he thought would accrue to him from the witch's prophecy, these are what has been shown to be hollow and, mm. and lacking meaning, signifying nothing. Uh, I think in some ways this is a moment in what is a very Christian play in mm. terms of the reaction to temptation and mm-hmm. to sin where Macbeth has realised that the kinds of things that he has prioritised maybe weren't the things that life is all about. Mm. Mm. No, exactly. You know, a lot has been made about this play and when it was written after King James comes to the throne, King James, obsessed with witches and witchcraft and, you know, writes that kind of... Um, bonkers book demonology Mm -hmm. and makes laws around witchcraft and the fact that you know we we must uh, stamp them out to to what extent is that going through Shakespeare's mind is he really just writing this play to please King James Is, is that what it's all about he is certainly aware of the fact that the Lord Chamberlain's men have recently become the king's men they have a new patron Uh, the company seems to feel it ought to be able to produce plays that are unique to Mm. its patron that has some sort of benefit from having James looking after them, patronising them, Mm -hmm. and so is trying in some small ways at least to curate a repertory of plays that will interest the patron. At the other end of the extreme, I think they're just being careful not to say anything that's going to really upset him. Mm. Uh, So Banquo historically is James's ancestor. Yes, right. And historically he's complicit in the murder of Duncan. Yeah, right. But Shakespeare goes out of his way to refashion Banquo as the good guy, Uh the opposite of Macbeth, so he's not going to upset his new patron, King James, Mm. and to tell a story of of James's ancestry that's a a lot more positive in many ways. Yeah. Yeah. Now King James, obviously on the throne at the time was interested in theatre, was mm-hmm. interested in drama, uh, and Shakespeare was able to deliver exactly what he wanted to see. But these witches in Shakespeare's play are very different from witches in other plays of the time. Now, I know one of your great interests is in non-Shakespearean early modern drama, so you're the perfect person to ask. You know, I'm thinking of plays like The Witch mm-hmm. uh, by Middleton. Um, the, the Witch of Edmonton was the other one. How are the witches in Shakespeare's play different from all the other witches that are written in plays around this time? The opening scene of Macbeth is quite striking for presenting on stage for the first time a group of witches rather than an individual witch. Yes. Um, So that's quite shocking. It's also shocking in as much as it's a perversion of Catholic rituals and Mm. it's an unholy trinity. Essentially, yeah. so there's a lot of coded, um, cynical references to Catholicism throughout this play, mm. uh, and the witches' perversion of Catholic rites and rituals by handling body parts in the potion that they're yeah, brewing yeah, is, yeah. is it is a nod to saints' relics and mm-hmm. things like that, mm-hmm. but in a very bastardized uh, form, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Uh, James is famously concerned with witches, and he writes that demonology book because when he marries Anna of Denmark. His plans to return home to Scotland by ship are thwarted by a storm which is supposedly raised by a coven of witches. Right. Mm. So James is subsequently obsessed with witches in that way yeah. and this play really speaks to that interest, I suppose, by mm. presenting a group of witches and, and, and making it quite a shocking affair in terms of how witches may intrude into the life of mm. everyday people and control their fates. But there are also different kinds of, of, of witches. First of all, 
They never call themselves witches. No. The only time the word witch appears in this play is when one of the witches is reporting what someone else has called her, mm. and she seems to be quite upset by it. A right the witch, the Rumford Runyon cried, she says. She's reporting what someone else said, and then she puts a curse on that person. They, they call themselves the Weird Sisters. Weird perhaps had a different meaning um, uh, around uh, prophecy at that time. Well, that, that's really important, the terminology, and that this is a play that only exists in the first folio of 1623. There yes. are no earlier single-text editions, mm. and the reading in the folio refers to them as the weird or wayward, like wayward sisters. Yes. Mm-hmm. So it does connote something slightly different, and it mm. positions them on a spectrum from the wise woman of the village who might be really uh, knowledgeable about medicinal remedies mm-hmm. and natural herbal cures for things, ancient wisdom, versus something much, much darker at the other end of that continuum. Mm. Uh, so they are ambiguous. Part of their status is this ontological blurring, the fact they're bearded witches, for example, right. conflates gender binaries mm-hmm. and makes things much more difficult to, to say black and white uh, in a to categorise what mm-hmm. they are and how they fit into society. Mm-hmm. And so to my mind, at least, they become a bit of an inkblot, a Rorschach test, where the mm-hmm. viewer, the beholder, has to bring something of themselves to the interpretation, yeah. to mm-hmm. read something to the witches. Mm. which is, I think, one reason this play continues to be so popular on stage today because mm. every director has to grapple with that choice of how do you represent the witches. Yes, yeah, it's hard. You don't want to have a Wizard of Oz-style green makeup and pointy hat, <laughs> which isn't going to scare anyone. Yeah. So, so what does a witch mean for a modern society that's mm. going to instill a suitable level of awe and caution, if not fear? Yeah. And it's a really difficult challenge. Yeah, it certainly mm. is. Now, Shakespeare obviously was inspired by many writers throughout his career and it's a time of writing collaboration and reading other people's writing and borrowing it, um, you know, in in some ways what we might call nicking it Mm -hmm. (laughs) these days, but it was much looser in those days. And uh, and you brought my attention to a piece by Thomas Decker, one of Shakespeare's contemporaries, from a play called called uh, Old Fortunatus, which you you have uh, you've edited an edition yeah. of that, uh, published an uh, edition of that uh, of that play. Can you read this little passage for us? Because this is very um, resonant, I think, um, for for the passage we just read. Yeah, absolutely. So I mean, I think the, the the key thing we need to know here is that Shakespeare is not writing in a vacuum. He's writing for a professional company that's commercial. It's trying to get people in to pay money for tickets. Mm. They're performing up to six days a week, mm. and there are multiple companies around London. So it's a repertory theatre. Mm-hmm. Uh, they rarely perform the same play two days in a row. Mm. Variety is the key, and they can expect that their play going public will be familiar with a great variety of this is the most dominant entertainment of the, of the period. Yeah. So the, the number of intertextual references, the number of uh, repetitions, not just of speeches, but of characters, mm. scenarios, plot lines, uh, it's all about variation on themes and yeah. experimentation. Mm. So we are expected to see patterns that are familiar and that recur. This play by Thomas Decker is for a different company, The Admiral's Men, around the turn of the century, he's writing at 1599. It's a fairy tale kind of a play. Uh, It's about a man initially called Old Fortunatus who's a native of Cyprus. He finds himself Dante-like, lost in a wood at the Mm. midpoint of his life, and he's miraculously visited by Lady Fortune who bestows on him inexhaustible riches Mm. in the form of this self-replenishing purse. Mm -hmm. Um, He subsequently then steals a magical wishing hat from an eastern sultan, Mm -hmm. which gives him this potential to transport himself anywhere around the world just with a wish. When he dies in the second half of the play, his two sons inherit those two magical objects. Ampedo is the sensible and thrifty son, and Delocher, who we're about to hear from, is a prodigal son type. 
Uh, he takes the purse, he spends the riches with wild abandon, lavishing gifts and jewels on courtiers he wants to impress with his wealth. Uh, and then, of course, things start turning sour and he has a Macbeth-like moment of realising he's maybe not done the right thing mm. and fate isn't going to play into his hands. Mm. Uh, the English princess seduces him, steals his purse, just after he'd promised to lavish everyone with this banquet, which is going to be extraordinary, like mm. he's going to burn spices rather than wood to fuel the fires wow, to yeah. cook with, right? Yeah. And he needs that purse to do this. Mm. Humiliated, once he realises his purse has been stolen, um, he forgets he's just promised that feast. Mm. And his servant, whose name is Shadow, it's a nice little reference here to walking Shadow Macbeth perhaps, mm. interrupts Andalucci's self-reproaches. Shadow says, shall I buy these spices today or tomorrow? Andalucci snaps out of his musing and says, tomorrow? Aye, tomorrow thou shalt buy them. Tomorrow tell the princess I will love her. Tomorrow tell the king I'll banquet him. Tomorrow, shadow, will I give thee gold. Tomorrow, pride goes bare and lust a cold. Tomorrow, will the rich man feed the poor, and vice, tomorrow, virtue will adore. Tomorrow, beggars shall be crowned kings. This no time, morrow's time, no sweetness sings. And this is uh, actually the Oxford English Dictionary's first example of this chiefly poetic no time, so mm. a time which doesn't exist. Mm. And mm. so I love that connection between this moment and then Macbeth, where they're both sort of standing outside of time and place. Mm. It's almost like they're looking down at their physical bodies from above, from the yeah. celestial sphere, and yeah. sort of, this again, this out-of-body experience where mm. everything just stops and they gain a very different perspective on life. And also, I love that speech because also he's saying these things will never happen. You know, yeah. these we keep saying yes, yes. I'll, I'll put it off till tomorrow. Yes, I'll I'll, uh, I'll start my diet tomorrow. <laughs> I'll, I'll start doing exercise tomorrow. Um, but uh, but these things will never come. And eventually, day after day after day continues, and you you live your life, and then uh, and then suddenly it's all over. But then I suppose the answer to that is well, then you should probably live your life and be present in the moment mm -hmm. rather than either regretting the past or thinking about what tomorrow might bring. I yeah, think. And, and each of these plays, like many others from the period, does have an interest in what is a good life, how do mm. we live well. Mm. Um, Macbeth is trying to seize the future. He mm. thinks it's all about vaulting ambition and he's thinking about how there will be positive consequences by acting suddenly and mm -hmm. rashly in the present to attain future goods, yeah. whereas in Fortunatus, each of the characters is really trying to live in the moment, spending their gifts rashly and suddenly and thinking they're living up a good life right. and then starting to regret that a little bit later on yeah, they yeah. think there might be more to life. So do you think that ringing of the word tomorrow would have been in Shakespeare's head when he wrote Macbeth, really, or, or is it a coincidence? It may be entirely a coincidence, but I think the repetition of tomorrow in that passage mm. is so striking and it's a structural principle here. It Thematically it resonates with the, the content of Macbeth's speech as well and we can expect Shakespeare was very familiar with his rival company's plays and their offerings mm. you can see again and again Shakespeare not just repeating his own motifs and yeah. characters and situations but also engaging really closely with what competitors did uh, so a really good example is uh, the famous so-called balcony scene in Romeo and Juliet yes. yep. uh, which is almost a word-for-word ripoff of Christopher Marlowe's The Jew of Malta sure. uh, mm. but it sentimentalizes what was a very cynical play mm -hmm. in Jew of Malta Barabbas the rich Jew of Malta is calling up to his daughter Abigail who's at the balcony of their former house 
and she's recovered the family riches and jewels and she's throwing them down to the street to her greedy father. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas in Shakespeare's play, of course, it's Romeo down below and he's calling up to Juliet who becomes the jewel herself. Yes, right. Uh, so right. a very interesting appropriation and salvaging of mm. Marlowe's moments, but very clearly a set piece yeah. that the audience would recognise. So what do you think sets Shakespeare apart from all of his contemporaries? You, you've read widely, probably more than anyone I know, in Shakespeare's contemporaries. What sets Shakespeare apart? Shakespeare, for my mind, doesn't necessarily have a quality of innovation in the first instance. We need to remember these writing in the English Renaissance, which is styling itself on the premise of rebirthing the classics, mm-hmm. a, a culture for whom originality meant a return to origins Origin, yeah. rather than a breaking with the past. Mm-hmm. And imitation was something we were trained to do in grammar school, like Shakespeare would have been in Stratford. Yeah. So he, in the first instance, is interested in, in, in replicating and experimenting with things that are already out there, mm. breathing new life into things. And to my mind, it's, it's not that he has the first word, it's, it's that he has the last he, he, he plays with ideas <laughs> and he experiments with things that are already out there and he seems to eventually have his fill and then moves on. Right. You know, he, right. he has a go with histories and then comedies and mm. then tragedies mm. and he seems to really just dwell on one form at a time mm-hmm. until he almost seems satisfied that he's, he's done what he wants to do with that yeah, before yeah. he moves on. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You're listening to Speak the Speech, the podcast from Bell Shakespeare. I'm James Evans, and with me today is David McInnes. David, do you remember as a child when you first encountered Shakespeare? It's pretty hard because Shakespeare is entirely wrapped up in your life now, but do you remember a moment when you didn't know about Shakespeare? I don't know if I remember a moment where I didn't know anything about Shakespeare. That's one of the defining features of Shakespeare is that you encounter him before you ever see or read his plays for the first time. Mm -hmm. It literally saturates our culture. Um, But the first substantive engagement I recall was not reading Shakespeare but reading an epigraph from the Australian playwright Michael Gow's play Away. Oh, yeah. And the epigraph is taken from The Tempest. Yes. And so I was meant to read Away. I read the epigraph from The Tempest and I immediately put the book down and said, I better go read The Tempest. And and I loved it. It was the first (laughs) Shakespeare play I ever read. I I adored it from the outset. Mm. It's one of those magical plays that reads simply like a fairy tale on first read. How old were you? probably about 12 or 13. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, but every time you revisit The Tempest, it, it repays that revisiting. Mm-hmm. It, it becomes more and more complicated on every subsequent reading or watching, I think. Yeah, yeah. That's amazing. And then throughout high school, obviously, you loved Shakespeare and then you decided to go and do your undergrad. Did you do that here in Melbourne? I did my undergrad at Melbourne. I had wonderful series of teachers here and abroad, uh, Marion Campbell, first really introduced me to the experimentation with form, I mm-hmm. think, and really paying attention to how the form of Shakespeare's plays is culturally conditioned and, and made me aware of how Elizabethan his writing is. Yeah. I, on a whim, I did one of those summer schools at Cambridge one year and I met the wonderful Dimpna Callaghan there mm. who was editing Romeo and Juliet for um, Norton at the time yeah. and she really introduced me to how we might historicise these plays okay. and think about the historical context. I studied at Toronto, my master's, uh, with Jill Levinson, who edited Romeo and Juliet also, but for Oxford. Mm. And she really taught me about the editing of plays, textual editing yeah, and yeah. the complexity. She had a filing cabinet full of A4 pages. Each one had a single line from Romeo and Juliet on it, followed by her copious notes annotating wow. that line. Wow. That was her yeah. Oxford edition. That's right. 
And then finally, I met Rosalind Knutson from Arkansas, who introduced me to repertory studies and thinking about the commercial impulses that govern Shakespeare's writing. Mm. And that was really transformative in terms of my appreciation of Shakespeare's craft. So now what, what balance do you have between research and teaching at the moment? Uh, nominally, it's a 40-40-20 split in my work, which means I have 40% research, 40% teaching, and then 20% service and leadership. But okay. they blur. Research should inform teaching. Mm. Uh, and I like to think my students are the beneficiaries of the kind of teaching of Shakespeare that only I would offer. Yeah. And if I were to be replaced, the way Shakespeare would be taught would be very different. Sure. And, and conversely, the way the students teach me about Shakespeare through their questions and their, That's their poking and prodding really what? makes me think differently as well, you know. Uh, the, the kind of questions that they ask. That's so how is it, so like what, what sort of thing do you mean? How has that changed in your time as a, as a teacher at the university level? Certainly when I was an undergraduate, uh, it, the emphasis is much more on close reading yeah. and literary analysis. Now the students really crave that desire to understand how performance works. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I expose them to much greater variety of international performances, not right. always in English. Mm. Um, even the wonderful Noongar translation of Macbeth oh, yeah. over in Western Australia, mm -hmm. Carly Bracknell and others. Mm -hmm. And we think more about the difference that performance makes mm -hmm. and how meaning is embodied how bodies in space create new potentials mm. and mm. how these plays are reinvented over time and place. Yeah. Uh, and so there are different perspectives there that get drawn out, I think, by virtue of bringing ourselves into the classroom, mm. uh, asking our own questions about this play rather than feeling a need to bow down to the pressure of 400 years yeah, of established yeah. scholarship that yeah. might not relate all that much to our worldview and experiences. Yeah, no, that's that's really interesting, isn't it? And of course these plays have to live, mm. otherwise they're just museum pieces. And, and certainly from our perspective, from a theatre company perspective, that's that's not interesting at all. But it's also good to hear that even within the academy that's um, that, that has moved on too. Because I know, you know, if you're probably going back 40 or 50 years, there was probably a pretty strong split between the way a university professor looks at Shakespeare and a theatre director. Mm. And I think those those are coming closer together now, probably. I, I think you get the occasional moments like Jan Cott's seminal text in the 1960s, Shakespeare mm. Our Contemporary, mm. which really revolutionised the way we think about Shakespeare and had a huge uptake with creatives as well. You yeah. know, directors yeah. like Peter Brook, who's just passed away, yeah. heavily inspired by Jan Cott when he came to do his White Box Midsummer Night's Dream. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so I think there's a very productive, fruitful dialogue between the academy and theatre practitioners. And I love to see more and more of that. And we're seeing that in terms of performance-based research in particular, uh, where academics who have maybe the historical knowledge or the textual knowledge really benefit from seeing actors at play, uh, mining a text for meaning and seeing how these new connections are forged and meanings are made and things that come up in the course of performance that wouldn't occur to you necessarily. Yeah. Uh, so the play I just read from before, Old Fortunatus, which I spent about 10 years working on, starts with uh, an echo scene mm. where Fortunatus is on stage by himself, lost in the woods, and he keeps muttering things and his words echo back to him. Obviously, there's an actor backstage who mm. repeats the end of his lines and it forms a, a weird conversation. But the strange thing in that passage is that usually it's one line by Fortunatus, one line by the echo, and that makes sense. Then Fortunatus has like a whole paragraph. Mm. It goes on for ages without anything <laughs> being echoed until the final few words. And over in Western Australia where we have the new Fortune stage at, at yeah, UWA, yeah, UWA yeah, we did yeah. some performance-based research there oh. and we realised Fortunatus must be walking in circles around the stage and it's only when he approaches the back of the stage where the echo where the is echo hidden is. <laughs> and there's a wall to reverberate off that the final words of that lengthy paragraph-length speech 
get repeated. Amazing. It yeah. all makes sense. You know, Decker was scripting movement and architecture into his yeah, playtext. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I love that. And you can see that in Shakespeare all the time. They're writing the stage directions. They're telling the actors what to do and mm. how to act throughout the dialogue, we, and, you know, and not necessarily in, you know, what in a film script you call the big print or, or the, the stage directions in a, in a play. David, we, we spoke briefly about the Lost Plays database. What is that? What, what have you done with this database? So this is a project that started off when I was a PhD student. I was working on plays about travel and distant lands mm -hmm. in Shakespeare's time, and, and I noticed fairly quickly that the surviving plays are all quite homogenous. They tend to be comedies or romances. Mm -hmm. uh, very few uh, are steeped in recent history at all. Mm -hmm. There's a couple, The Battle of Alcazar, Captain Thomas Stukeley. Uh, the Travels of Three English Brothers, but that's about it. Mm. Whereas uh, we have documentary evidence for plays that were written and performed but for whatever reason haven't survived and they painted a very different picture. Uh, a play called The New World's Tragedy, mm. another called The Conquest of the West Indies, a play about the Dutch massacre in Amboina in Indonesia. Mm. So if we attend to the plays that were available to Shakespeare's audiences mm. but have been lost in time, we get a very different picture of what Elizabethan theatre or early modern theatre looked like. And it turns out that between around 1570, when the first public theatres are really being built and established, and 1642, when the Puritans closed the theatres, mm. only about 543 plays survive. Yes. Whereas we know of at least 744 that are right. lost. Right. We know about them by name or diary records mm. or eyewitness accounts, things like that. Not even a line of them exists. Sometimes a couple of lines, sometimes yeah. maybe a page exists, mm -hmm. sometimes just the title exists, yep. an, an intention to publish or a record of performance mm -hmm. uh, or, or of censorship, uh, but that's it. And there would have been hundreds more written in, in terms of just how many plays the professional companies in London needed yeah. to be commercially viable. So in other words, what has survived is the distinct minority. Yes. And anything we say about Shakespeare's period is based on the minority evidence and could be a massive distortion. Right. So the Lost Place database is an open access resource and it's designed as a wiki style resource mm -hmm. just to bring together all that information and make it publicly available mm -hmm. for free. Mm -hmm. So you can go and consult that year by year or playwright or by company, however you choose yeah. to sort it and work out what else was going on. In Shakespeare's time. And Shakespeare has one of those, right? There's uh, one lost play. One and a half. There was a, a sole authored play called Love's Labours One, mm. which may or may not be a sequel to Love's Labours Lost. Titles are often misleading. Yes. Uh, and there's a co-authored play at the end of his career, co-authored with John Fletcher, called Cardenio, mm. which is written, it's based on a subplot from Don Quixote by yeah. Cervantes. So looking back at the early days of, of, uh, of Shakespeare's company, and really we're talking about the early days of a model of a theatre company rehearsing, putting on plays. They're figuring it out from the ground up. Mm. What was rehearsal like? How did they put these plays on? Well, we don't entirely know. We don't have records that say this is what happened on this day in May 1599 or anything mm. like that. Uh, what we do have is the surviving texts, I suppose, in a variety, a variety of forms. Uh, Tiffany Stern has done a, wonder, a lot of wonderful work on this, yeah. but we have uh, uh, what we call a plot or an outline, mm -hmm. uh, which in the first instance can be uh, a particular playwright's overview of the story. Yep. So Anthony Munday was famous for his plotting skills. That was mm -hmm. one of his unique talents as a playwright. He would devise the entire story, but then perhaps divide that up between other playwrights who would write individual acts or scenes or even just speeches. Yeah. We then have a, a backstage plot 
which is like a roadmap for the entire play. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's, it's a single sheet of paper divided into scenes which have uh, cues for entrances and exits so we know where everyone has to be when, yeah. with props, special effects, things like that. Mm. The individual actors only receive their own lines with mm. perhaps two or three words of a cue, like the, the, the words uttered by the previous speaker they have to listen out for before mm. they, they start delivering their own lines. Yeah. And we think the reason for that is largely the, the time involved and the expense involved. Copying, in copying out the whole play, out. sure. If you ever yeah. tried writing out Romeo and Juliet by <laughs> no hand, one, no one wants to do you that. You don't do that for 20 people, 15 <laughs> people. But an effect of that, whether they're conscious or not, is to, to create a sense of uh, spontaneity mm. or, or improvisation, almost randomness, where there is a greater sense of listening carefully to what other people are saying when they mm -hmm. deliver their lines and also being able to focus on your own lines. Yeah. And this is Lynn Tribble's work on distributed cognition where she talks about the fact that these actors had to learn so many parts. Mm. One way they did it was by focusing on just what's most essential. Have you ever picked up a copy of Shakespeare that has too many footnotes? Mm. You get distracted by them. Yeah. You know, maybe you all know those editions, I won't name them, that have a third of the page of Shakespeare's lines and two-thirds <laughs> of the notes. Sure, sure. Very easy to go down rabbit holes. Yeah, if yeah. you have a clean text, mm. much easier to read through in two hours traffic. Yeah. So the same principle. If you only have your actor's part, you can read through it and learn it much faster. Mm, mm. And then we don't know whether they had rehearsals at all, whether mm. they only had one read-through, whether they had multiple, whether yeah. it all just came together on the stage. It's it's quite uncertain. It, it seems like there wasn't a director as uh, in the modern sense no. telling actors, you know, this is, <laughs> this is where you walk, this is where you stand, and uh, this is the motivation of your character, this is what you want to do. That sort of stuff comes much later. Certainly right? no director. There would have been a prompter. There would have mm. been a full copy of the text at the theatre and a prompter would have marked it up for entrances and things like that mm. to make sure that everything was staying on track. Uh, and, of course, the actors in Shakespeare's company had access to Shakespeare. Mm. He was not just a playwright but an actor himself and a shareholder in his company. So he had a real vested interest in making sure the plays yeah. he wrote turned profit. Yep. Uh, yep. And he was involved in the staging of many of them as well. Ah, profitable theatre. Yeah, <laughs> <We're>, um, <laughs> I don't know what that is anymore, but uh, it certainly existed during Shakespeare's time, which is incredible. That's amazing. Why do we not have any of Shakespeare's handwriting? I mean, apparently, I was talking to Janine Watson, she she did a bit from Sir Thomas More, and apparently that is Shakespeare's handwriting. We have that piece but how is it that we don't have any of the other plays in Shakespeare's own handwriting? All we have are almost like these echoes, these, these uh, publications, the first folio, the various quartos. Why is that? Well, there's a number of reasons, but partly the fact that so much has been lost. And I mentioned the lost plays before, mm. completely overwhelming the number of surviving plays. Uh, it's just not a culture of permanence in that yes. same way. Yes. Uh, it is a pragmatic context. They are writing plays for performance mm -hmm. rather than for posterity in many instances. Mm -hmm. There are exceptions. Ben Jonson famously supervised the sure. printing and publication yes. of his own work. Mm -hmm. Shakespeare, we, we're, we, it's disputed the extent to which he had a hand in seeing his, any of his works through to the press or had an interest in it. Mm. But essentially a playwright would draft a play uh, if you've seen photos of that page or two from Sir Thomas More in Shakespeare's handwriting, it's it's not easy to read. Yeah. So yeah. often after a playwright has finished writing it, there will be a fair copy made or a scribal copy made mm -hmm. for distribution, at which point the earlier copy may or may not have been superseded. Mm. The authorial copy may not be needed anymore or may go to the family or be buried in a, in a, in a desk somewhere, who yeah. knows. Mm. Uh, but it takes on a life of its own after that. And as Hamlet says to the actors, when they come to Elsinore, speak no more than sit down for you. Mm. Actors were prone to ad-libbing, to improvising, yeah. <laughs> to augmenting the text. Sure. <laughs> it's a highly collaborative enterprise. Yeah, yeah, so whatever yeah. Shakespeare wrote wasn't necessarily the same as what was ultimately performed. The play is a, a living, thriving organism that changed from day to day. Isn't that fascinating? So we can't 
all we could have had was a, a version of the text, not the play itself. Isn't that fascinating? What a great answer to people who say this is definitive Shakespeare mm-hmm. or you're not being authentic or, or such ty- types of expressions. What is authentic? What, what does that even mean? Exactly. Yeah. You know, we know that in 1607, allegedly, the East India Company ship off the coast of Sierra Leone, the Red Dragon, performed Hamlet on board. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was that? You know, mm-hmm. they're, clearly they're not actors. They didn't memorise the parts. Yeah. Maybe they had early printed editions of Hamlet they read. Probably not. Mm-hmm. It more likely they remembered seeing the play yeah. and reconstituted it to the best of their ability. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. it was Hamlet for all intents and purposes. That's right. Now, you are right in the middle of a long process of editing the um, Time of Athens. Now, what a great gig, David. The Arden 4th edition uh, you've been handed this. It's quite a responsibility. I'm not sure if any Aussie scholar has had this responsibility ever before. Have they? I don't think so. <laughs> uh, ironically, Harold Oliver in the 1960s also edited Timon, but for right. the Arden 2 series. Oh, that was the Arden 2. So here's the most recent okay. one. <laughs> okay. Well, well, um, you, you didn't say anything about the footnotes, but uh, I'll, I'll mention the Arden 2 had uh, a hell of a lot of footnotes. Is this going to be a different, uh, different edition, this uh, fourth edition of Timon? have to be cagey on the details of the distribution between footnotes versus text okay. and the format and innovations of the series. That's okay. all sort of uh, under wraps, under wraps for now sure, until sure. work is more advanced. Mm-hmm. But it will be different. There's no point doing the same thing over and over again in terms of how we treat the text. Mm-hmm. And, and getting back to that question of authenticity, every editor who sits down to edit a Shakespeare play has to grapple with really difficult questions about what the preferred reading is going to be because mm. none of the texts that have survived, no matter which play, no matter how famous, uh, are, are perfect. Mm. Uh, they're all blueprints for performance. Uh, they're all imperfect in different ways, mm. corrupted by the intervention of the playhouse, yeah. of scribes, of actors, of memorial reconstruction, of the printing process, of censorship, mm. of the author's false starts and second thoughts. Yes. Uh, and we don't want to simply type up a text, a document that we've received. Mm. We actually want to do something to it to make it intelligible, workable, insightful, meaningful. Mm -hmm. And that involves a lot of micro-level decisions about meaning Mm. interpretation Mm. and it involves much bigger picture ideas of what kind of a document it is we're looking at. Mm -hmm. In the case of Timon of Athens, it seems fairly clear to me that it's co-authored with Thomas Middleton. Various scholars have decided which portions uh, belong to which author. From my point of view, I don't think an early modern audience would have cared. Mm. They wouldn't have been sitting there going, oh, that was a Middleton speech. That's the Shakespeare That's the Shakespeare scene. Mm. They Mm. would have gone to see Timon of Athens. Mm. So one thing I would say is that my edition won't be foregrounding the minutiae of authorship and doing that sort of analysis. Mm -hmm. It'll be treating it as a play and attempting to think about the play's potential for performance. Mm. The Mm. text we have, as published in 1623, has a number of false starts, uh, sort of uh, plot holes, uh, things that haven't been resolved properly. <laughs> no doubt about it, yeah. Uh, yeah. Most famously, there's a, there's an illiterate soldier at the end who nevertheless manages to read Timon's epitaph on the tomb. <laughs> so there are things that Shakespeare obviously started thinking or Middleton and then mm. decided that they would fix up later and didn't get back to fixing yeah, up yeah. in the version that got printed. Yeah. So I have to make some of those difficult decisions about which bits to change, to cut, to okay. remove, you know, and, and okay. to make the whole thing flow. <laughs> but is it a is it a good play uh, other than that once you've done a dramaturgical kind of done some dramaturgical work on it is it a good play to put on do you think? 
I think it's only going to continue to be more relevant and meaningful now. I yeah. think the time for Timon has arrived. I think Jan Kott famously said of Midsummer Night's Dream that it was only after we passed through 20th century movements like surrealism and the grotesque mm. that we finally understood what Shakespeare was driving at in the nightmarish vision of that mm. play. Mm. And I think something similar has happened to our outlook now. I think the pandemic in particular, uh, but maybe the global financial crisis a decade ago as well, has really altered our sense of the way the economy and society is structured, mm. uh, the nature of human bonds and relationships, of charity, generosity, uh, the way we come together and relate to each other. Mm. And Timon is a play that really speaks to all those concerns. And I think we're ready to understand the bleak nihilism of Timon now mm. in a way that previous generations weren't. It's a play in which Timon, in a nutshell, is, is a rich Athenian lord who is far too generous and expects that generosity to be reciprocated by his friends. But when times get tough, they, they leave they him alone. They turn their looks, backs on him. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so that he, he then uh, experiences that abject rejection, goes slightly mad, runs off and lives in the wilderness and, uh, and shuns society altogether. Mm-hmm. And so those questions about relationships and, and proximity to others and how we interact with people and, yeah. and that what we expect of people. Yes. Uh, these are all things that are very, and the relationship between society and isolation. And the impact of money, money, money on relationships. That's right. It's very powerful. Yeah. All those things really come into sharp focus in a different way now, I think. I think mm. we're ready to really explore time. And- That's fascinating. David, it's been such a fascinating conversation. We could go on for hours and hours, but uh, we've got to wrap up our chat now. But before we go, we have the final five, five quick questions for you. And five quick answers. Here we go. Are you, David, the lover, the villain, or the fool? <laughs> I think the villain. Much more interesting. <laughs> think about Claudius at prayer. He's such a complex character. Yeah. I'm ignoring about the pros and cons, regrets, but still going ahead with it. It's wonderful. What do you reckon is your most underrated Shakespeare play? Apart from time, and I would say um, the very early, dubiously contri- uh, attributed Arden of Faversham. Oh, yeah. A domestic tragedy written about 1590 by Shakespeare and someone else hasn't been staged in Australia, really needs to. It's a so, wonderful play. So you're saying Arden of Faversham is definitely one part of the, it's not part it, of the Apocrypha, it's It's, it's definitely one of Shakespeare's. partially Shakespeare written yeah. and it's a wonderful, wonderful play. Interesting. Okay. Who's your favourite uh, artist that you'd love to work with, who you haven't worked with before? I'm going to cheat and say someone who's long dead, Edward Elaine, who was the star Elizabethan actor who didn't work in Shakespeare's Company because okay. I want to hear from the horse's mouth what it was like to see Shakespeare's Company in play <laughs> and, and, and how they were received by others yeah. rather than necessarily what Shakespeare thought he was doing. That's interesting, isn't it? <laughs> who were the, co- the the competition just looking at Shakespeare's plays and going, how are these guys doing it? Did, <laughs> and they, they ran half of them out of business, didn't they, Shakespeare's Company? Uh, uh, yes and no. I mean, I, I think there was a real boom from the 1580s onwards there was mm-hmm. the Queen's Men, there were the Superstar Company in the 80s, but then Lord Strange's Men, Admiral's Men, the Chamberlain's Men, Sussex's Men, um, briefly the Earl of Oxford's Men, uh, Pembroke's Men. There were quite a few. Right. Their fortunes waxed and waned. Mm-hmm. Shakespeare's Company was one of the ones with the longevity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because yeah, they put bums on seats. That's right. They had stars. <laughs> they, they, they knew how to, how to bring them in. <laughs> what is your uh, dream Shakespeare play to work on? 
Oh, to work on. I love the Tempest I said before. I think mm. that's such a rich, evocative play and I just find new things in it every time. And one of the earliest performances I remember seeing was Simon Phillips' version of the Tempest oh, yeah. set in Australia with a first fleet aesthetic. Mm. And uh, I don't think they would do anything like that again today, but it was very much of its time and really wonderful at that point in time mm. at the turn of the century mm. uh, with an Indigenous cast for the Islanders and the first fleet aesthetic for the Neapolitans. Yeah, right. And yeah. it was just such a rich, moving production at that moment when reconciliation was such a hot topic yeah, yeah. Uh, to intervene at that point was really very fascinating mm. and finally if you weren't a Shakespeare scholar what, what do you think you'd be doing <laughs> <laughs> I could cheat and nominate a cognate field like book history and still dwell in the 17th century but something completely different honestly gardening I think gardening sure I, I, sure. I love working yeah. with Australian native plants uh-huh. I've got half a dozen wattle a dozen choria but it, it's still theatrical right it's still about spatial relationships yes. it's about spectacle it's about growth and development, about yeah. history and origins, about disparate parts coming together to form a coherent whole that's, that's you know, beautiful. Mm-hmm. And so it's meditative, contemplative, similar kind of thing in many ways. David, what a <laughs> pleasure. Thank you so much for joining me today on Speak the Speech. Bell Shakespeare is Australia's national Shakespeare company. We perform in theatres and schools in every state and territory. If you'd like to support our work or to learn more about what we do, please visit bellshakespeare.com.au. Speak the Speech is produced by Bell Shakespeare and edited by Camillo Zanoni. Be sure to follow at Bell Shakespeare on social media and don't forget to subscribe, rate and review our podcast through your listening platform. <laughs>